Let us hear God's Word. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, un- let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, God, our rock and our redeemer, and your people said, Amen and Amen. It's been more than a decade or so since the National Basketball Association and its players' union agreed to a rule that says players need to be 19 years old in order for them to enter the NBA after high school. Article 10 of this collective bargaining agreement that was struck about 12 years ago contains the core of the agreement that has since been come to be known as the one-and-done rule. And it refers to a player who graduates from high school and needs to play one year of college ball and then become eligible for the NBA and make all that money and be charged with all of that responsibility. Now, many people feel that the role will be revised at some point, but there are people on both sides. Uh, Some of the veteran players and coaches don't like the role very much, and some of the players who are in high school, well, they want to go to work right after they get out of high school. Perhaps they're thinking, if everybody else can go to work after high school, then why shouldn't I? Uh, veteran players think that the, the kids need more time and more experience before they go to the pro level. And, and, you know, thinking, let's face it, there are not many Kobe Bryants and LeBron James and Kevin Garnett's out there. But you see it if you follow basketball, whether it's from Duke University or Kentucky or some of the other schools where players come and they stay one year and then they're out. They're one and done. If you think about the terminology here that we're referring to, one and done, it has skipped out of the basketball arena and to the larger culture of our language and the way that we do other things. When you think about it, one and done refers to the way that we use consumer goods. If you have a little one who's still in diapers, you know there's one and done product. You change the diaper and roll it up and put it in the, in the diaper hamper or the trash. Or think about the things that we eat off of at church fellowship dinners and picnics. We get our chinette plate when we go through the line and our plastic utensils and our solo cup 
and after we eat that one meal, those things are disposed of. Even though the plastic utensils in the Solo Cup could probably be used again, and if the plates are plastic, they could be washed off and used again, but most all of us will just discard them. I don't know about you, uh, I, Melanie will tell you, and I've probably said this in past sermons, that I have a hard time throwing things away. And so if it were left up to me, we'd have a house full of Solo Cups. We'd have a drawer full of plastic utensils that Bob put in the dishwasher so that we could save them and all those things. But these are one and done. You use it and throw it away. Today in our world, or especially um, in Europe and in America, we're talking about plastic drinking straws and how detrimental they are to the environment. And I'm serious about this. Uh, they make their way through the waste system. They uh, are not um, large enough to be ground up and then end up in the water system. And I have seen news reports of sea animals, of sea life, that have those drinking straws in their breathing system, in their nostrils, or in their digestive system, and other plastics as well. They can cause great harm to our sea life. And so many restaurants are starting to encourage people not to use plastic drinking straws, and they're substituting them with paper ones. So you have to make your choice as a consumer, but these things are one and done. Or there might be some folks who have one child, and then they say, well, you know, we don't want any more. One's enough. One and done. Or there are teams that are in a tournament, like this past week in our football playoffs. And if your team didn't win at the high school level in that playoff, they go home. They're one and done. Or sometimes people will enroll in the armed services for a two-year or four-year enlistment. My dad served for two years during Vietnam. And when he was discharged, he continued on with his life in a secular world. He was one and done. So you can think about other things in your life that this applies to, but then there's Jesus. The Bible says that in the dual role of high priest, great high priest, if you've been following along in our Hebrew series, speaking of Jesus as our great high priest, and the sacrifice that he made for us, that he was one and done. He acted as a high priest for us once and was done. He offered a sacrifice once himself, and he was done, once and done. Typically, the temple priests in the Old Testament sacrificial system were never one and done. They were always acting as priests, always offering sacrifices for the sins of people and their own sins. But Jesus comes along and everything changed. Jesus won and done priesthood. It was very special. It was an unusual arrangement. Now the people who are listening to the words of the preacher, the author of Hebrews, would have been familiar with this sacrificial system we are not as much, and we have to study our Old Testament and really get into the book of Hebrews and the correlations in the Old Testament to understand it better. But priests in Judaism, as far back as the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, offered sacrifices of animals like sheep and bulls and lambs and goats, and they did this many times. 
The writer in verse 11 says, And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away our sins. But no priest ever offered himself as a sacrifice. Read the first chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, and you will see how Elkanah and Hannah went regularly all the time to make their offerings. And they would show up, and it was over and again, year after year. But thinking about these priests and this priestly system, it would have been pointless because sacrifice has to be made without blemish. No human being has ever been without some blemish or imperfection. No human, no priest otherwise has been perfect except Jesus, the one who's named Jesus. He was perfect and without sin. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinful people. We all fall short of His glory. The priests in the Old Testament system were imperfect. They fell short of the glory of God, just like us. But Jesus is the only one who could qualify for such a perfect priesthood. He was a perfect sacrifice, spotless, without blemish. He was, if you want to use that terminology, a one-and-done priest, a one-and-done Savior. A single sacrifice, says the writer in verse 12, for our sins. Jesus came to earth once and was done. Jesus died once and was done. Jesus was raised once and was done. Jesus lives and reigns. Not done. The writer uses this vivid imagery to illustrate his point. The sacrifice on the altar is Jesus. The priest entering the most holy place is Jesus returning to his place with the Father The blood that the priest brought into the most holy place is Jesus' own blood. He became the sacrifice. And when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit takes up lodging in our heart, in our very being, and we as temples of the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul writes, then become the dwelling place of God, and our heart is the most holy place. And it is there that Jesus does His transformative work in our lives. Jesus has offered a one-and-done sacrifice, and since this results in the forgiveness of our sins, there is no need for additional superfluous religious sacrifices. He's done it all, once and for all. This is the promise he makes to us. Verses 16 through 18 in chapter 10. This is the covenant I will make with them. And after that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. And I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven. Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Jesus has done it once and for all. All we have to do is accept it. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need, says the writer in verse, chapter 4, verse 16. 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You remember that story? I think I've told it one time where there's a husband and a wife and they're in marriage counseling. And the husband tells the counselor the problem with her is that every time we get into an argument, she gets historical. And the counselor says, don't you mean hysterical? And he says, no, historical. She keeps bringing up the past over and over and over again. God forgives our sins and remembers them no more. God, when we confess our sins and are faithful and just to Him, He forgives us and will cast our sins into the depths of the sea of forgiveness. He remembers them no more. That's impossible for us humans. I try my best with God's help to put things in the back of my mind and not to dwell on them, not to get historical. In marriage counseling, when I work with young couples, I go to 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Do you remember that verse? And Paul is using an accounting term there, logizomai. It says, love does not take a ledger out or QuickBooks or whatever it is that you use, whatever spreadsheet, and keep a record of wrongs. Love forgives sin, forgives wrongs, and remembers them no more. This is the promise of God in Jesus revealed to us in this scripture. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And we might say, well, why not? Because where there is forgiveness of sins, says verse 18, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus has done it all. And then we come to a transition in the text. In verse 19, we see the word, therefore. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the same terminology we find in chapter 4, with confidence we approach the throne of grace. There's a therefore. And if you've been around HRBC for a while, you know we've talked about this. What do you do when you see the word therefore in the text? You ask what? What's it therefore? So I ask when I see the therefore, I ask what's it therefore? What are you trying to teach me, Lord? In this case, the writer is giving us some exhortations, some practical wisdom and application for our lives. In other words, all that has been said thus far is building context and foundation. The footings have been poured. The stones have been laid. The foundation is being set. Jesus is our one and done Savior. And now we must do something. Perhaps these exhortations help us to respond to God. That we won't give up. When we feel like giving in, we won't give up. When we are discouraged, we won't give up. When our health is failing us, we won't give up. When we have a diagnosis that's not so good, we won't give up. When our marriage is rocky, we won't give up. When I am experiencing an addiction to a substance, I won't give up. When my wayward teenager is struggling, I will not give up. We will not give up. When we hear these words, they are encouraging to us that we would dig in and not give up. I use that terminology that we might dig in when we feel like giving up. Yesterday I ran the Richmond Half Marathon. Several others from our church ran it. 
and there are several parts in the race I struggle with. Elliot, you're a runner, and you want to give up. You've run many of these long races before. You want to give up. And I have taught myself to take to dig my toes into the bottom of my shoes to propel me forward when I feel like giving up. Especially, this is helpful when you face hills. To dig your toes in, and it pushes you forward. And in my mind, I'm telling myself, dig in, Bob, dig in, go forward, keep going, you got this. When you feel like giving up, dig in with these exhortations. First one is, cling to your faith. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Dig in. Cling to your faith. Don't give up. When other philosophies around you or other worldly things want to say, hey, this is how you should do it. Don't worry about that Jesus stuff. Here are some things that I'm doing that are pretty helpful. Maybe we would cling to our faith and remember the words of Jesus that he gave to his disciples in Mark 13 when they were struggling. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, there will be famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. And in verse 9 of chapter 13, it says, you must be on your guard. And he tells them some of the things that they will face as they follow him. But in this passage, he's saying, cling to your faith, guys. Hold on tight. Never let go of Jesus. And then in verse 22, we're kind of going back a little bit. I see that he's telling us to approach God with confidence. Back in the Old Testament days, people were afraid of God. It was said that, and the scripture said that if somebody saw the face of God, that they would die. So there was great fear. But under the new covenant with Jesus, God says, come near to me. Approach the throne of grace with confidence when you have a need. God loves you. God accepts you. God says, come near to me and I will come near to you. Let us draw near to God with sincere hearts. And then in verse 23b, remember that God is faithful. Remember that He's faithful. For He who made these promises is faithful. This is the same God who made promises to Noah God promised to Abraham. God promised to Joshua. God promised through Jeremiah the prophet, I have plans for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Pro- uh, the I- prophet Isaiah, those who trust in the Lord will rise up on wings like eagles. They will not grow weary. They will not be faint. You know that verse. And in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, My God will supply all your needs. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, I will be with you until the end of the age. God's promises will never fail us. They are for sure. They are certain. You and I 
are to remember that God is faithful. He loves us and accepts us and wants us to approach him. Verse 24, the writer says, Let us consider how we may spur on one another on toward love and good deeds. You and I are to encourage one another. The word translated spur is actually a, a word that means to provoke or prod. And I'm not saying that we're supposed to be a burr under anybody's saddle or that we're supposed to poke somebody or pinch them. But the word helps us say that we are to be encouragers. Yesterday when I was running, it was the last part of the race, and my mind is saying I can't do this, and I need to dig in. And then I came up on a a lady that had Philippians 4.13 on the back of her shirt. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. She had no idea that that shirt that she chose to wear that morning would encourage me as I ran by. You and I have no idea how we might encourage one another through the body of Christ. You never know who's sitting right next to you who has a need and how you might encourage them. Maybe it's just a smile. Maybe during the meet and greet time you encourage them. Maybe you ask them, how can I pray for you, etc.? You and I are called to be encouragers, to spur one another on in the faith. And part of what makes that important is worship. Look around you. You see beautiful people in this room. People who love you, people who want to be with you. And there are some other empty pews today. There always are every Sunday in every church. There are always people who aren't there, who should be there. There are reasons, travel and work and all these kinds of things. But the writer says, let us not give up meeting together. Don't forsake worship. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Isn't it easy to get out of the habit of church? Isn't it easy to do something else on Sunday and Oh, I'm gone two or three weeks, and then by the time I realize it, it's been a few months, I'm out of the habit. And then it's easy for us to say, well, I was away and nobody called me. I hear that sometimes. I was away and I was sick and I, nobody knew I was away. And when that happens, we've got to step up and do our part to make sure people are missed and that we're caring for people, that our Sunday school classes are doing the appropriate outreach. They'll make sure that people know they are valued because we must not give up meeting together. There's power in worship. There's power that helps us to be encouraged as we go through our weeks. Let us not forsake worship. And when we are in worship, we, we learn and we receive God's power and we're able to then be better equipped to share the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go. Worship is not a one and done for us. Worship is not a box we check. It is said that the average Christian worship attender, churches are saying, the the average active worship attender attends one and a half to two times a month. It used to be much greater than that. But now we consider people active if they're with us one and a half or two Sundays a month. 
And I believe that must change in order for us to fulfill the mission that God has for us. We are called to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And we do that individually as part of a greater community, the body of Christ. Henry Nouwen writes this, and I will close with it. The church is called to announce the good news of Jesus to all people and all nations. Besides the many works of mercy by which the church must make Jesus' love visible, it must also joyfully announce the great mystery of God's salvation through the life, death, suffering and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now in writes, the story of Jesus is to be proclaimed and celebrated. Some will hear and rejoice. Others will remain indifferent. And some will become hostile. The story of Jesus will not always be accepted, but, people of God, it must be told, writes Nowen. We who know the story and try to live it out, living the therefore, have the joyful task of telling it to others. When our words rise from hearts full of love and gratitude, they will bear fruit whether we can see it or not. We keep on loving and giving until Jesus comes or until he calls us home first. We are not one and done. Let us pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for this beautiful autumn day here in the RVA. Thank you for these beautiful people who make up the family of Huguenot Road Baptist Church. Thank you for the saints who have gone before us guiding our way, providing such beautiful facilities as this and resources that we might use. And thank you that we might do the kind of work that will help those who come behind us find us faithful. In the midst of it all, we are called to be your people and to encourage one another and not giving up worshiping with each other. There might be some folks, Lord, who haven't yet fully experienced what it means to be a believer in Christ and part of such a beautiful thing as the family of God. Instill within their very being to make that decision to step out in faith and to give their life to Jesus, experience baptism and become part of this beautiful body and the greater family of God. We offer our prayers to you and dedicate this time of invitation in the name of Jesus. Amen.